Well, I'll turn your Bibles this morning, if you would, again to Ephesians. Make that Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 7 down through verse 11. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 through verse 11. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And let us pray. Lord, we, th- we thank you that we can come into thy presence, that you hear the prayers of thy people. And I, I thank you so much for privilege of worship this day and the, the preciousness of the assembly of the saints. I thank you for each one that is here this Lord's Day morning and would pray that you would work signally and deeply and, and clearly in their hearts and uh, give them ears to hear what you would have for them and, and hearts to respond to the truth of Holy Scripture. I, I pray again for the help of your Holy Spirit uh, during these, these moments to uh, convey thy holy word in a way that represents your intention behind it and in a way that would bring glory to thee in a way that would most serve um, your glory and the edification of our souls, our, our conformity to the person of your Son. So we commit this time to you and, and pray that you would be exalted in our hearts and in our midst. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last uh, Lord's Day, I made reference to the fact that uh, believers in Christ constitute what is referred to as uh, the house of God, which is noted in verse 6, whose house we are. Which is to say that believers in Christ, those who are brethren, many sons who are brought to glory, they they make up the house of God. And we also saw in this connection, um, there was a conditional statement immediately following this idea of whose house we are. There's a conditional statement that says that's if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And in these words, that is the conditional statement, fit in with um, a doctrine that is referred to as the perseverance of the saints. Uh, the first line of the 17th um, chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere, persevere therein to the end, and be eternally saved. One more recent theologian wrote, the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So perseverance of the saints brings out the fact, yes, God starts the good work in us, but we continue to believe, continue to trust, continue to rely on the person of Christ. And it's a doctrine that's very helpful in that it, it alerts our mind to the nature of the Christian life. Uh, we would like it to be maybe a walk in a park, and you probably notice devotional books will often have a very peaceful picture on the front cover. There's a, you know, a lake and a cabin by that 
that or a nice green lane somewhere. But the fact of the matter is it's a warfare. Uh, my older version of the Christian in complete armor, um, the old cover had a picture of a battlefield on the front and bodies strewn all over the place. And, and that's a good picture of, uh, of understanding how the Christian life truly is. It, it, it's not a walk in the park. It's lived in the context of adversity against the world, against the flesh, against the devil. And in that light, it did seem legitimate to see, for me to see, verses 7 through 11, um, which are, by the way, they're part of a larger section, verses 7 through 19, a warning against to avoid Israel's example of unbelief. But it seems reasonable to, to see verses 7 through 11 as helps to persevering in the faith in the context. So last Lord's Day, we noted four helps in this regard. One was the ongoing validity of the Old Testament as it relates directly to Christian living and Christian thought. And then secondly, to seriously consider the danger of hypocrisy in the living of the Christian life. And then to... um, Thirdly, to cultivate a disposition of a a willing conformity to the dictates of Holy Scripture today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then fourthly, to um, regularly evaluate the condition of our own hearts as it relates to spiritual matters and and what things our hearts are being drawn out to. Well, uh, a fifth help, which we did not make it to, it would have been something like this, the danger of rebelling against the Most High God. The danger of rebelling against the Most High God. Uh, The author of Hebrews um, is quoting from Psalm 95 when he writes, um, when they provoked me as in the day of wilderness. And provoke brings out this idea of revolt or rebelling against God. It's a quote from Psalm 95.8. It makes reference to the historical situation in Exodus chapter 17, which we'll look at in a few moments. That's where the people are complaining about the, the lack of water. And so this morning I want to bring this theme of rebellion against the Most High God into prominence. And um, I'm really almost viewing this as kind of a meditation, and I want to argue that we need to beware uh, of an encroaching spirit of uh, rebellion and things that are closely allied to that, like um, uh, complaining and grumbling and discontentment. So that's really kind of the, the theme I want to bring before your mind this morning, to beware of the encroaching spirit of rebellion and things that naturally kind of cluster um, around that. And part of the value of that, of isolating that theme, it's what really gives unity to verses 7 through 11. Uh, the perpetual rebellion and grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness is really the backdrop of, of these verses. Uh, and also, presuming that human nature has not changed at all since the wilderness generation, that we're exactly the same, people are exactly the same now as they were then, uh, quite possibly this is a spiritual malady um, that we are more prone to than we think. I'm arguing that rebelling against the high, most high God is possibly a spiritual malady that you and I are a bit more prone to than what we might think. You might recall in Philippians 2.14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And the pattern of the Israelites in the Old Testament was certainly a pattern of, of grumbling and disputing. And yet the Bible makes it clear that pattern is a great impediment to being an effective witness for Christ, a light for the gospel. So this morning we're going to 
try to move our way through this particular section, and I'm going to put forth three considerations that I hope serve as a helpful preventative against this disposition of rebellion against God and the living of the Christian life. So three considerations. The first one, I want to make the point that it's applicable to us. It's a warning that's directed against the true worshipers of God. It's applicable to you and I because it's a warning that's directed against, I should say, addressed to or directed to true worshipers of God. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul wrote, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And and one might embrace those verses and and like them and say, This is what I am, and I I love to worship God, I love to worship Christ, and I I don't really consider it a great danger for me to rebel against the Most High God. I don't think it really applies to me. Well, one might think that way. I was recently... Um, writing a, a check, sending in my, my quarterly payment to the Internal Resident Revenue Service, and I was reading some of the literature connected with it, and it says that they don't as- accept checks written for more than $100 million. And so I, I read that, and um, my, my thought was not, gee, I'm glad I read that before I wrote my check. You know, I, I read that. That's got nothing at all. It doesn't apply to me at all. Now, I'm I'm arguing that we may think that way in the Christian life. Well, this doesn't really apply to me. But under this heading, I want to say it does apply to you and I. And that is true for two reasons. Number one, because these words are directed to worshipers. And secondly, because of the character of remaining sin. So I'm going to argue under this heading, it does apply to you and I because these these words are directed to true worshipers. And secondly, because of the character of remaining sin. Now, you need to turn, turn back to Psalm chapter 95. This is a quote from Psalm 95. And notice verses 7 and 8. This is what I, I mean by directed to true worshipers. Psalm chapter 95, verse 6, you're familiar with. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. And then verse 7 says, He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Then, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. Now, Meribah is the name Moses gave to the place to reflect what took place there. It means striving. And Masa, he also gave that name. That means testing. So it was a place of striving and, and testing. Do not harden your heart as they did in, the, in that day. So it's, it's directed to those who are worshipers. It's directed to those who are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So I, I take that to mean that those words are addressed to, to people who would um, who would glory in Psalm 26, 8, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth, or one thing I have asked from the Lord, that shall I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. So just from the, from the perspective of the historical context here, um, this, this message and, and this warning is directed to those who are worshipers of the Most High God. Um, So it has applicability to us. But I would argue also it's applicable to you and I because of the nature of remaining sin. We all have remaining sin, right? We're on the same page there. Um, What is it like? What's the character of remaining sin? Well, I'm going to read to you Colossians 3.5 in a moment. But before I do that, let me just preface it by saying this. The words of Colossians 3.5 are written to those mentioned in Colossians 3.1. It's those who have been raised up with Christ 
and, and those who are to set their affection on things above, those who have experienced the power of the resurrection, and they know something of the glory of the resurrection, it, it's those who are new creations in Christ, and, and, and their life is hid with Christ. To, to those people, Colossians 3, 5 says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. That is, people have been raised up with Christ. They are told to put to death the deeds of the flesh, which includes idolatry, which is the fruit of rebellion. When one rebels against God, they move towards idolatry. Um, so this, this warning is needed and directed to, is needed because of the character of remaining sin. So we are to not harden our hearts. So in the first place, I'm just saying it's applicable. This, this warning is directed to those who are true worshipers of God. That's who you are. That's who I am. So it's an applicable warning to us. Secondly, um, I would have you note that rebellion always has its reasons. Rebellion always can make its case. Now here, turn, if you would, back to uh, Exodus chapter 17. Uh, the historical background for our text is Exodus chapter 17. We go back to Psalm 95, but the historical background is Exodus chapter 17. And uh, we really want to make it to verse 7, but I thought it would be helpful to just put it in the proper context. So I want to begin in verse 1. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. This is the account where the people are complaining because of a lack of water. But verse 1 of chapter 17. All the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, that's a place in the wilderness, capital S-I-N, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Problem here, so there's a problem here, they're in the, they're in the desert and there's no water. W.H. Gispin, who has written helpfully on Exodus, wrote, irritated by their thirst and probably also by the nearness of the inaccessible springs, the people begin to quarrel with Moses. This is, by the way, this is the fourth time where they, they have grumbled. Uh, the first is in chapter 14 where they, they see the Egyptians coming and they're getting close to the, to the Red Sea. And so they're, they're pressed. And so that's the first instance of them grumbling. A second time is just after there's a clear, obvious display of God's power parting the Red Sea and effect their safe deliverance, and then um, bringing the waters back onto the Egyptians. And right after that, Moses and the people, they sing what is referred to as the Song of Moses. It begins by saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. The last line of the Song of Moses, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. So all the people, they're worshiping and praising God for this great display of power. Um, and then the wilderness journey begins, and, and still in chapter 15, the very first stop is at a place called Merah, the water is bitter. That's the second time of grumbling. The, the people grumbled at Moses and said, what shall we drink? I mean, the very first stop, they are grumbling. It's like maybe taking off for a family vacation, the first day you're going you're gonna to go for eight hours and 15 minutes in. One of the young ones says, when are we going to get there? How much longer is this going to be? And so this is the first stop, and they're already complaining. Then the second account of grumbling is in chapter 16, where it says, "You have this is directed against Moses. You brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And that's when the Lord provides manna for them. And then this is the, the fourth recorded time of their, their grumbling oh, since they, their four, the fourth time, chapter 17, verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Gisman writes, quarrel usually is used of a verbal argument or dispute. It's more serious than grumble. And John Currid, who's also written on Exodus, 
wrote the response of the people to their circumstances, it's more combative than mere grumbling. Uh, the word quarreled is a strong word meaning to strive or to find fault with a measure of hostility. The intensity is further emphasized by the stark demand of the Hebrews, the imperative, give us water to drink. So the anger here on their part is palpable. It's that. And then uh, Gisman writes this. The words of the people imply that Moses, who had performed many miracles, was able to provide water so that they could drink. But Moses pointed out that while they quarreled with him, their argument was really with the Lord, as indicated by why do you put the Lord to the test with which Moses reproached the people? Moses considered himself powerless. There was no sense in their quarreling with Gisman. Excuse me. No, no sense in their quarreling with him. And then in verse 3 of chapter 17, the people thirsted their for water they grumbled against Moses and said why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst so they accuse Moses of bringing them into the wilderness to die this is the second time they've accused him of this crime then verse 4 of chapter 17 Moses cried out to the Lord saying what shall I do to this people a little more and they will stone me so this is the time to pray and that's what Moses does they're going to kill me then verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now then verse 7 says, he named the place Masa, that means testing, and Meribah, that means striving, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So there's a little bit of the historical background to our text. And let me just make two points in this connection. The first is that being in the desert without water is a problem. I mean, that is, that is an issue. Uh, the basic concern is legitimate. You have to have water to drink. Um, it's not optional. You need it for life to be sustained. So the basic concern is credible. There's nothing wrong with the concern they had for water. But secondly, the, the problem lies not in their concern, but in, in the way in which the concern was expressed. There's no sense of trusting in God. In spite of all the, the signs that he had performed in Egypt, in spite of the clear evidence of his display of power in delivering them from bondage, in spite of the fact that he'd made the water that was bitter sweet at Marah, it's no wonder in, in Numbers 14.11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me, and how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? And it's almost like you sense divine frustration. What is it going to take for these people? people to believe in me in spite of all these signs and all these things that they I have done for them and, and just an aside here um, we can kind of answer the question I think what's it going to take for them to believe God has to open the heart that's that's what it takes for anyone to believe he has to open their heart to respond to to the gospel and uh, if you're here this morning and you're interested in spiritual things and you have a desire to please the person of Christ and prepare for the world to come that's not because you saw signs and wonders that's because God at some point in time opened your heart like he did with Lydia to respond to the truth of the gospel. But, but the problem here is that there's no sense of trust in God who had signally, repeatedly displayed his power. Rather, there's a spirit of discontent and distrust and anger. Psalm 78 kind of elaborates on it. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. 
He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. Then he led them with a cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? So the, the problem here, it's not a concern over the situation, but how this concern was expressed. And again, W.H. Gispin, the Lord could provide water, but to ask him to do so in such a spirit of discontent and doubt amounted to testing. Their, their sin lay in this testing and quarreling. Testing is, is used here as a means to invoke the Lord's power, not in faith, but with challenge and, and irreverence which is precisely what Israel was doing. It was an expression of discontent rather than a prayer. It's much, I think, like the unrepentant thief on the cross. He, he says, are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's, it's not a prayer of, of uh, reliance. It's a prayer of defiance in that particular situation. So, so rebelling against God, it has its reasons, but it expresses itself in the wrong spirit. It's not really trusting in his goodness. Well, then thirdly, under this heading, let me just add this thought, that walking in the way of duty with God is no assurance of an absence of difficulty and trial. Walking in the way of duty with God, that's no assurance of an absence of affliction and difficulty and trial. Uh, the Israelites are being led by, not the enemy, they're being led by God. George Bush, not an ex-president, but a 19th century commentator on Exodus, said, though journeying by the commandment or under the express guidance of the Lord, yet they are conducted to a scene of extreme trial and distress, showing that the mere fact of our being in the way of our duty is no certain security against the occurrence of trouble. God may have wise, though inscrutable reasons for bringing his pilgrims from sin, the place of sin, capital S-I-N, to Rephidim, from hunger to thirst. I was reading recently in Voices from the Past, and I thought these words from... Um, Samuel Rutherford will help were helpful as it relates to the difficulty there can be when you're when you're in the way of duty when you when you're doing what the Lord would have you to do he says you may not know what the Lord is doing in a particular circumstances but you will know hereafter let Christ know of your heavy cares let him bear all dear brother do not become weary of your master's chains we are closer to Christ when we suffer keep close to Christ and let the wind blow rejoice in his cross your deliverance does not sleep and his promise is not slack wait for God's appointed time of deliverance you shall lose nothing in the furnace but dross not one ounce too much is laid on you the devil is just a whetstone to sharpen the faith and patience of the saints the Lord is cutting and polishing stones for the new Jerusalem be content to wade through the waters holding his hand for he knows all the fords you may be dunked but you will not drown those who went before you went through blood suffering and many afflictions christ has borne the whole cross and his saints bear only chips be content you are his wheat growing in the field you must pass under the lord's threshing instrument on his barn floor 
through his sieve and through his mill to be bruised as the prince of your salvation was. Christ has handsomely fitted the rough tree of the cross for your shoulders that it will not hurt you. Your treasures are in, in Christ's coffers and your comforts greatly than you can believe, greater than you can believe. Do not be afraid when you see the swelling river of death. You may wait after Christ and the current, however strong, cannot carry you down. The Son of God, his death and resurrection are stepping stones to stay you. You have only these two shallow brooks, sickness and death to pass through. Christ will meet you and go with you foot for foot. Yea, he will bear you up in his arms. Oh, then for the joy that is set before you, run your race with patience. Well, then in the third place here, let's kind of a step further. I want to show that rebellion against God should be thought of as a great evil. The concept of rebelling against the God of the Bible should in our minds be thought of as a great evil. The language of our text has clear reference to Exodus 17, but uh, not exclusively to that. So turn, if you would, a, a few chapters or a few books to the right to Numbers chapter 14. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then chapter 14. And this is a more uh, culminating and definitive act of rebellion that took place at a place called Kadesh, um, and just to refresh your memory, in chapter 13, the spies had been sent out into the land of Canaan, and they came back with a glowing report. Uh, this is a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And they noted also that the people were large and, and strong. And comparatively speaking, the Israelites then would be as grasshoppers in their sight. So the, the Israelites rebelled in Numbers chapter 14. And using that passage as well as our, our own, I just want to, um, I, I want to offer some reasons why rebellion against God is such an evil. And the first reason is this. It's an overt defiance of the very being of God. It's an overt defiance of the being of God. And we see that in Numbers chapter 14 and verses 1 through 4, that all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Notice verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? That's what they're saying. Why is God bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder, subject to violence. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. So there's unanimity here on the part of the congregation, all the sons of Israel. But it's not veiled resistance, but there's mutiny against the Most High God. This is a heinous evil because it's a direct accusation that impugns the motives of God himself. He brought us out here to die and so let's replace him with a human leader to bring us back into servitude in Egypt well secondly the level of evil is brought out by the fact that it was a sin against great light we've already touched on that but in chapter 3 and verse 9 of Hebrews it says and saw my works for 40 years it was not that they just heard about his power or read about it, but with their own eyeballs, they saw these mighty, great displays of power. Stephen, in his sermon on Acts chapter 7 and verse 36, this man led them out, referring to Moses, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And John Owen, commenting on this, um, wrote, this therefore greatly aggravates their sin, that they themselves saw these works of God. 
from the nature of the works themselves, which they saw, that there were such as were eminent effects of the properties of God and means of their demonstration and therein of the revelation of God unto them. Some of them were works of power, as is dividing the sea, where waves roared. Some of majesty and terror, as the dreadful appearances in thunders, lightnings, fire, smoke, and earthquake at the giving, giving of the law. Some of severity and indignation against sin, as is drowning the Egyptians, the opening of the earth to swallow up Korah, Dathan, and Abraham, and the plagues that befell themselves. Some of privilege, favor, love, grace as the giving of the law, entrusting them with his oracles and forming them to a church and state. Some of care and providence for their continual supply and giving water from the rock and bread from heaven, preserving their garments from getting old. Some of direction and protection as the cloud and pillar of fire to guide, direct, and refresh them day and night in, in that waste howling wilderness. In all which works God abundantly manifested his power, goodness, wisdom, grace, faithfulness, tendering them the highest security of his accomplishing his promises if they rejected not their interest in them by their unbelief. All these works of God were excellent means to have wrought up the hearts of the people unto faith and obedience. So it's a great evil because it was a sin against great light. And it's not just simply God showing his mighty power, but it's works of God in their behalf. His works were there for their benefit, to deliver them from bondage and to, to guide them and to sustain them and to save them. Well, then thirdly, it's a great evil because it was a perpetual pattern. It's a great evil here because it was a perpetual pattern. Verse 10 of chapter 3 in Hebrews says, Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They always go astray in their hearts. That means at all times, all the time, and on every occasion. Uh, to go astray is uh, it's to be misled. Um, it's to become misled from a proper belief and course of action. To be led astray, it's, it's to be moved from a proper way of thinking and then from a proper course of action that would flow from that. And we notice here it happens at a very deep level, their heart, which could be understood as the center and source of the whole inner life with its thinking, feeling, and volition in the case of the natural man as well as of the redeemed. Peter O'Brien wrote again and again, the Israelites of all people did not recognize the divine ways, the paths in which the Lord walked, wanted them to walk. Psalm 81.13 says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. That's God's desire. They would listen to me and they would walk in my ways. Um, by the way, I was just thinking if you're thinking later on about our, our time this morning and this concept of rebellion, you're trying to get your mind around, okay, um, the pastor talked about rebellion today. What does that mean? What does rebellion mean? Here's, the, here's a short definition. It's um, disobedience against God. Rebellion is disobedience against God. You know, you don't need to turn to it, but later on today, you need to read 1 Samuel chapter 15, classic chapter on this. In verse 3, this is when Saul is told very clearly what he's supposed to do. Go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Straightforward, this is what you're supposed to do. Pretty clear in terms of obedience to the word of God. Well, verse 8 and 9, we read, He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now, the divine assessment of this selective conformity to this directive is, verse 22, Samuel said, 
Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as a sin of divination and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Rebellion is presented here as the sin of witchcraft. And it's understood in the context of disobedience to the clearly revealed will of God. What makes rebellion, what makes this rebellion, uh, what makes rebellion disobedience is that it is disobedience to the king. It is disobedience to the king, the ruler of the universe. So it's a rebellion against the, the moral governor of the universe. So when you think of rebellion, it's disobedience to the being of God. Well, then, fourthly, this is a great evil because... Um, of God's response to it. We see the evil because of how God responded to it. Um, He is angry with this generation. He says, I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. They they shall not, that is, they won't enter the promised land. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 22, says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. In verse 30, Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, uh, except Caleb and Joshua. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land which you have rejected but as for you your corpses shall fall in the wilderness so what i'm saying here is that rebellion against god is presented as a very great evil a very negative light and one which um, even though we're regenerate because of remaining sin we're still subject to and so in conclusion, I was trying to think of, well, what do we do in response to all this? Okay, I have remaining sin. Okay, I'm still subject to rebelling against the Most High God. Well, in chapter 3 and verse 10 of Hebrews, of Hebrews it says, They did not know my ways. Um, they were able to practice rebellion, so to speak, because they did not know the ways of God. And that suggests to me that the great preventative to this spiritual malady is to always be increasing in the experiential knowledge of the being of the God of the Bible. The, the great preventative against the encroaching spirit of rebellion is to always to be proactive in increasing in your appreciation, your apprehension, your delight in the various perfections that make up the being of God. And, and you and I can do that because a feature of being a new covenant believer is that we do know God. You do know God already. You do have an appreciation for him already. Uh, Jeremiah 24 7 says I will give them a heart to know me and Jeremiah 31 34 says they will shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them so I'm, I'm suggesting to you that the great preventative against the spirit of rebellion and the things that go along with it discontentment and grumbling is to always be increasing in the character of the of the God of the Bible And I would just end by saying this, when you're doing that, when I'm doing that, we know that is pleasing to God because Jeremiah 9.23 says, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him boast, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And let us pray. Father, I I pray that you might be pleased to take what we have considered this morning 
And I, I pray it would be helpful to our own thinking, to our own living for Christ. I, I pray that you would make holy application to our souls. You know each of our comings and our goings. And so I, I pray being a good God and a wise God and a holy God, uh, you would apply thy truth to our, our souls corporately and individually for your, for your glory and for our own good and for our own growth and grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.